0: It's 12 o'clock in Frisco, Texas, and it's time for Smoker Broker Radio with Robert Mesh, a.k.a. The Smoker Broker. Robert is the owner of Small World Realty and has employed hundreds of real estate agents in his 17-year career. He has instructed and mentored over 10,000 real estate agents at the highly acclaimed Champion School of Real Estate and is considered an expert in Texas residential realty. Robert is also an advocate of true entrepreneurial spirit and has helped many to transition from corporate America into the world of self-employment. And now live from the studio to your world, The The Smoker Broker. Hey, welcome
1: to Smoker Broker. I'm Robert Mesh, I'm the guy they call Smoker Broker. Hope everything's going well. Hope you're having a great week uh, running through the winter like there is no winter except for today. Got a little bit of ice in Dallas-Fort Worth. Again, we continue to experience our bipolar weather where it goes one way or the other. We go from 80 degrees to 30 degrees, just like that. 20 degrees, ice, rain, sun. Uh, It's awful. Uh, Hail, back in the hail season again. Uh, So for the agents who are fairly new, uh, that's something that you actually kind of have to watch, especially when you practice real estate in the state of Texas, because it matters. If you've got houses that are in those storm path lines that have passed the inspection periods, uh, a lot of times we have to go back in there and make sure that there is not a damage or a claim that has to be uh, filed. So definitely messing with all that. It definitely always puts a pause into the way we do our real estate, it's hard for us to get on a normal schedule when we keep going back and forth like that. It's amazing to me how many of the agents, even when the roads are rough, they still get out there because the clamp on the houses right now is so strong and so tight that they have to see houses as they come on the market. And it's amazing what they do uh, uh, to help their clients in those types of situations. And we see that even today where people probably shouldn't be driving on the roads. Uh, They're out there uh, trying to make it happen. We continue to struggle with uh, a low inventory market. Uh, It's really on its probably 18th, 19th month. It looks like it can possibly uh, start easing back as the rates get up. But uh, at this point in time, there really is no sign showing that it's going to close. And we've even had to kind of start looking at other alternatives uh, as to how do we put uh, people in the house? In fact, Brent and I was just talking about this a little while ago. You know, some of the alternatives that we've gone to uh, are almost to the extreme. But it's also complemented by how COVID has changed the way people go to work. And in a weird way, it's actually helping to some extent uh, push people further out than they have been a long time. As always, I bring some of my guys on. I'm of my see senior guys over here. And to my longtime friends, Brent Holberg and Mike Dallas, uh, we are going to talk about inspections today. But before we jump into that, Brent, I do want to talk about some of those alternatives that we've been discussing. And because I think it's worth uh, worthwhile. Why are we discussing pushing further out right now? Why are we considering that maybe it's OK to go further out than we normally have in years previous to this?
2: Because there's nothing available.
1: It's true. It's true. It depends where you're at. Uh, depends which area you're looking at. Why is it okay if we put someone further out? What's changed that that makes that possible?
2: Well, I mean, people are working from home now, right? They're working with with Zoom. The internet really um, makes that easier to be able to to telecommute. Or now it's like it's just Zoom from home. Um, and you know, as, as the Metroplex expands wider. There's gonna be more shopping and grocery stores out there eventually. So the way I see it is if you get further out, you can get ahead of the price increases and get some equity pretty early on as everything expands.
1: Yeah, I I don't I don't think anybody would have ever expected that in any of the metroplexes that we're in, whether it's San Antonio, Austin, Houston, or Dallas, that we would consider putting someone two hours outside those city limits, but we are in fact seeing clients come through asking for that and they're doing it because what you just said, they, they only have to be at work maybe once or twice a week so they can handle that type of drive. If they only have to do it once or twice a week, if it gets them the home that they want uh, with paying what they want for it, and what most people find is that if they're going out further rural, they're getting a lot more for their money. And to some people, they actually, they like it because it's what they wanted. But you also talked about uh, the, the bigger problem is that the infrastructure is not there yet. For a lot of those places, they don't have the services that many people desire. And I think that's going to be the interesting battle as we move forward the next year as people start spreading further out. How far are they willing to, it's one thing to go to work once or twice a week to drive in. It's another thing to go pick up groceries or have to go to the the pharmacy uh, when it's like 15 miles away.
2: When it's it's icy.
1: And it's icy. Yeah. (laughs) It's got today's worst than, you know, you'd almost rather four or five inches of snow than that garbage (laughs) that's out there today, because it looks like it's actually all right and it really isn't.
0: It's It's not. It's slick.
1: It is. It looks terrible, um, which I hate days like that. I've had too many bad experiences on stuff like that. And it does make it difficult to make those commutes, and especially on days like ice. So it's frustrating, but it'll also probably, I guess if you're really looking at it from a um, an academic point of view, one could start arguing that if we really believe those trends push us further out in each of those areas, where do the commercial and construction investors get in and start betting on that is what's going to happen? How far do they go? How far do they say, I think we should start buying this land, uh, you know, in Waco because it's between Dallas and Austin. Poor Waco. It's just like a, a secondary, you know, uh, I use Waco as a punchline to Dallas and Austin because it's as if it's like in the middle of nowhere which it kind of is. But what happens when we start putting people out, you know, an hour east of Waco, an hour west of Waco, or north of Fredericksburg, uh, outside of Lockhart, uh, you know, almost out to Lufkin, what happens where those infras- that infrastructure, at what point does someone pick up with it? Because it will happen. You know, it does. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's an exaggerated example, but if you look at the East Coast, I mean, that's how the East Coast is. If you look at it from D.C. all the way up into Boston, uh, all those areas are connected. I mean, you have people that do commute from some of those cities because they're so close. And whereas that's not what you would expect to see in Texas at some point, you might see something like that. I mean, I envision a future of Texas where the I-35 corridor and the I-45 corridor all connect,
2: like literally. Well, think about that train. If they ever get that train up and going, that's going to really help a lot. Yeah,
1: but it but it's just uh, another instance where those areas all connect one way or the other at some point. Yep. And you know, anybody who's made the drive between Austin, Houston, and Dallas and San Antonio, it's there's a lot of uh vacant land as you drive between those cities. You know, at some point I don't think it's going to be so vacant anymore. And I, I think as the transportation gets quicker, and the housing and the infrastructure gets uh, you know more developed. They very well might all be intertwined in another fifteen years or so. Yep. Yep. It's possible, at least. Okay, we are going to talk about one of our most popular subjects, one of our more popular shows, uh, one of the more informative ones that we do. Because it actually is probably one of the most difficult. We talked about inspections. We're actually going to do two phases of this. We're going to talk about uh, the beginning piece of inspections. We will never have enough time. So we actually break the shows up and we uh, do a second one for the following week. Uh, So we're going to start on it and we're going to continue with it with our next episode that we go through. And we probably could have 10 episodes on inspections if we truly wanted to. But we're going to try to hit the basics of it to give you an understanding as to what you should be doing at least what you should know you know i mentioned that the inspections sometimes are the most difficult piece a lot of people are surprised by that Uh, i've been known to say for many years now i would argue that the inspection negotiation is more difficult than the actual negotiation of the contract itself and i would also argue that a majority of contracts and deals fail more in the inspection phase than they do anywhere else in the transaction period so it's a it's a serious subject it does depend on how much you know you could actually be the cause of why it fails which is why we're doing this show to make sure that you don't step into those pitfalls and that you do know what's right and wrong at least have a basic understanding as to am I etiquette wise doing this correctly to where it won't lose the deal so Mike, walk us through, get us through the step process where we're at when we get to the inspection. What's happened already uh, timeline or time-wise that we're
0: here now? We found a house, which is, uh, and put in an offer and actually won the deal, which is, uh, that's, that's becoming more and more the, the biggest battle, I guess. But, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've executed a contract, uh, we're inside of the option period and that's where we're trying to get inspections done, negotiations and that kind of thing. So, uh, hopefully they have, uh, before we've even, um, gotten to this point, they, they know who they're going to call so that we can get on the phone immediately, get something scheduled. Cause this time, this right about now, it's gotta be done very, very quickly.
1: All right. So we, uh, We'll have a lot of takeaways on this particular show, and he just had a couple of good ones. Uh, the first one is uh, the inspection has to be scheduled super quick. Uh, you do not wait to the last part of the option period to do an inspection. Uh, most of us teach you that you should be scheduling an inspection the next day or the day after, by far, at latest. Uh, another takeaway, you're not the one that schedules it. You let the client schedule it. You can give them referrals. But don't schedule it. There's been many times in court that they've proven if you're the one that actually scheduled the inspection and something went wrong, then you're to blame for it. So that is not something you want to do. Uh, another takeaway, three takeaways in the first part of this show. There's a lot of them. Uh, when we refer, we refer in threes. We don't refer just one person. It's been held up in court. If you refer only one person, that it's your fault as well because you didn't give uh uh, enough choices for that individual and it's your fault that that person didn't do what they were supposed to do even though that sounds ridiculous that is actually how the court interprets such an action from a professional who's supposed to be giving advice and opinion so lots of takeaways uh in this show anytime you have a show that has over 10 takeaways and we're going to go way over 10 takeaways uh, it's probably one of the more important ones that we do okay so that's right That's where we're at. That's where we get to it. Um, Brent, explain the inspection process itself. What is it that they're going to do? Actually, more important, what's the expectation? This is a takeaway, too. Setting expectations is extremely important when it comes to inspections. And Brent's about to tell you why, but I'm going to tell you right now. As a takeaway, you have to set the inspection to whichever party you're at as to what's about to happen. Brent, what are those expectations?
2: So the expectations have kind of changed over the past year or so. You know, it, it in the past, you know, historically, it's always been only things that affect the material and liv- livability of the house, right? Things that would affect you on a day-to-day basis, such as, you know, a, a, a leaky sink or a roof problem, foundation, air conditioner, um, issues like that. I mean, I'd say in most cases now, you, d- you still look at the inspection, but regardless, unless it's something major, that seller is not going to be willing to fix it. So you're just, you know, this is more of a peace of mind inspection. I see it now, just so you can feel comfortable knowing that there's not something majorly wrong with the house. So you know, when we put in the offer, we, we make sure that um, we fill out, we check the box for 7D1, which means we're accepting the property as is pending the inspection. Uh, but if you see stuff in the initial, you know, when you're touring the house, something that's very noticeable, maybe you want carpets replaced. Maybe you need, you see a window that's broken. Maybe you see something that's very easily, you know, to the naked eye, you can see that it needs to be fixed. You put that in 72 of the contract. Um, But now we're at the inspection and this is stuff that you didn't see when you walked through. So the inspector is going to be going up and and checking all the systems they are going to be checking the electrical, the plumbing. uh, roofs, foundations, stuff like that, and you know they don't really check the foundation that much, but they can give an opinion whether it's functioning as intended. But um, like I said earlier, we're looking for stuff that is going to affect the day-to-day livability of the house.
1: Brent, are these uh, this inspector? I mean, are they specialists in these areas?
2: Yeah, they're. I mean, they're certified by TREK, mm-hmm. the Texas Real Estate Commission. But I mean, are they? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, no, it's a it's a general inspection. Right. So they're they're going throughout everything. So basically, if they see an issue with the plumbing, they're going to recommend that you have a plumber. Come take a look. If you see an issue with the roof, they're going to recommend a roof or foundation, structural engineer. Same thing. So they're going to give you a very general inspection.
1: Keep going while I digest my ADD medicine.
2: Oh, God, I'm going to get some emails later. All right. So. um, (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, and what Robert's going to definitely dive on more is when the inspection report comes back and there's things that don't affect the livability of the house and it's a code issue that's going to be one of the things that causes probably the largest amount of deals being uh deals falling apart because it's not something that really affects the day-to-day uh livability of the house
1: all right good job thank you for that buddy um so dallas you're um mike's a long-time real estate agent and uh He actually, his expertise is a lot better from uh, when it comes to mechanical things, uh, things are with the house, common sense about uh, what can be done with the house. Uh, He's actually pretty savvy in um, remodeling and looking at things, whereas that's never been my forte or understanding as much. But someone like Mike can walk into a home and he probably can see more than me and Brent because uh, we're just looking at it from a general standpoint, but he might actually know if there's issues. And, and so at times it does help if you have that type of uh, uh, understanding and knowledge. It makes it easier to do the inspection because there's a difference between there's something being really wrong and is it maybe just a a, 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 a A coincidence that makes us feel that something is a real issue so for example we get this all the time and this is a great takeaway for anybody that's out there it's gonna be one of many inside this just topic alone um everybody when they go through they see a crack in their house this will help the general public too you see a crack like in the corner of uh, of the wall or the corner of a room everybody thinks a crack it's just an automatic response to oh i have foundation problems oh that is like one out of a thousand things that would have to go wrong for your foundation to really have issues it's extremely common in the state of texas for us to have settling cracks we have extremely hard soil you have a bunch of brick and cement tons of weight that's been put on it we go through drought seasons it's only common sense that the house is going to be put down and eventually sink a tad, and it moves that material. That doesn't mean you have a foundation issue. A lot of times, it takes multiple things for you to say there's a foundation. For instance, you might have spider cracks. And that it, it, you could have foundation issues, but it's not because of the spider crack. Have a spider crack. Have stair step in the mortar cracks out in the brick, have separation between the soil and the foundation that's bigger than a half an inch, those all together might say that there's a foundation issue. Doors that are jammed, windows that are jammed, those by themselves are not foundation issues, but all together they could present a problem. So one of the most immature and unknowledgeable things that anybody does from a client standpoint or a general public standpoint or an owner standpoint is to make the assumption that I have foundation problems just because of that. Something we see a lot too is where a owner asks us, or they do it on their, set, on their own, they go through and they do an inspection just because they saw a spider crack. all no, you don't want to go do a foundation inspection or a structural inspection on your home just because there's a spider crack. Because now you just invited somebody to come in and write a dossier about what's wrong with the house when there really was nothing wrong. And now you got to disclose it. And I'm going to tell you, it scares people when they see foundation reports. It shouldn't, but it does. They don't want to see it because the moment they see it, they're like, oh, there's something wrong with the foundation. No, 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 I did it because it's okay. Well, why the hell did you do it if it was okay? Why did you get an inspection?
2: You know, I think one thing that becomes an issue, as you You talked about it earlier, is when a home inspector goes through, they're giving a very general inspection, but they're licensed to do it. And I think a lot of agents will come in and give their opinion as far as they'll say, oh, this house has foundation issues or, oh, the foundation's fine, and they are not licensed to do that. that's, and that's that, a good way to get to That's do.
1: where we're going with this. That's the problem.
2: I'm trying to hurry this that, up.
1: That, that's the a- <laughs> problem.
2: <laughs> idiots, both these guys are idiots.
1: That. That's the problem. And, you know, it's funny, 21 years into this, and I don't know if it's because I'm getting older, maybe I'm getting more irritated. The guys know they can sense my irritation before this. I was having microphone problems and I lost it. Uh, Maybe that's, uh, I don't know what it is, but the more I do this, I'm starting to get more irritated with the fact that it really is the agent that causes most of the problems and the shit that we do. And that's the person that's supposed to be helping. The agent is supposed to be helping. And the more I do it, the more issues that we see, it's because the agent screwed it up. You know, I don't know if it's a curse or a blessing to run a brokerage, the size that I have, and that because I see all the stuff that comes through. So on a daily basis, I see all the BS that comes through. I see the good and the bad. But when I see it all, it, it gives me a terrible reflection. Of what some of the agents do and I'm proud of this it ain't mine mine are not the issue. the issues that I'm talking about are the people that we're having to deal with because it's clear that they have not been trained or someone showed them how to do something to make them act like they're worth something and they're actually causing problems or they're doing something that's making the deal worse or that could actually kill the deal itself This has become a generic problem in real estate with everything that we do. God forbid we start talking about breach and the consequences of breach and how agents can really screw that up. Because I'm going to tell you right now, in a breach of contract, 99% of the time, if there's a breach, it's the agent's fault. It is the agent's fault that they did not explain to that client that was doing the breach of what's going to happen to them if they pursue it. So we see all this stuff, all right? And we see the agent out there, and they're trying to um, you know, analyze the inspection report. And and these two worlds collide. This, this, this agent who feels like they have to show their worth, and I have to keep saying enough to make it look like I know what I'm doing. And those worlds collide and cause just an absolute cluster. Because now you got someone who's talking about stuff that they shouldn't that really didn't need to, but they're doing it because they want to make themselves feel good because their client doesn't think they're doing enough for them. And that is just like the worst recipe for anything. Now, Brent touched on it a minute ago and I'm going to be more specific with it where it comes to setting expectations and what we should tell a client on one side or the other. So if I'm representing a buyer I'm telling them before we do that inspection. That inspector is going to make it look like that house is falling into the ground. They are are trained to write up any single thing that's wrong with it. And to the average person, it's going to be like, oh my God, this is awful. That
0: they can see.
1: That's right. That they can see. That they can see. So they're going to make it look like it's terrible. We have to tell the client. That we expect to see that. It's not a shock. We know that it's coming, but we also have to get ahead of the curve of telling them we are not going to be asking for the little things. It's a pre-existing home. This is a very important takeaway from this. It's a pre-existing home. We expect those types of issues. We expect there to be probably some need for repaint. We expect the need for it probably needs to be recarpeted or some of the doorknobs are loose or the dogs torn away at the do- um, door at the back. We expect those types of things.
0: Of course, you don't need an inspection report for carpet. You don't. So look, let's talk Which about Which is why, why put it on there if you knew about it. Let's at, talk, let, you know, this,
1: this show doesn't have to go one way or the other because it just, it keeps fueling, Issues that we run across. And Mike just came across a, a good one. And Brent hinted at it a second ago. Brent talked about the technical side on the 7D2. And Mike just brought up why 7D2 is important. So 7D1 says, that, and I apologize. I know we see some people outside of state that watch our show. I know inside the Keller Williams Network, a lot of people pull from my podcast sometimes. So I apologize. The 7D1 the and 7D2 are talking about do we accept the house as is or do we accept the house as is with the exception of? Mike's talking about the exception of that. If we walk into a house and we know that the carpet is shit before we even write the contract, 72 specifically says we accept the house as is with the exception of. That's when you would put that this thing needs to be recarpeted. Do I need an inspector to tell me it needs to be recarpeted when there's rat crap everywhere? I already know it's going to be replaced.
2: What kind Why of homes do, do you show? That? What's that? What kind of homes do you show? Good hey, Lord.
1: Let me tell you. You think that, if you saw some of the ones I've walked into, I, I actually probably should have gone and got tetanus shots at times. Uh, Oh, oh, the
2: ones where you said, look out for vagrants, that one where you sent me (laughs) in without power? That's
1: happened way too many times. Thank you. Oh, that's right. That was awesome. Yes. That house probably should have put in a hazmat suit on. Thank you. That was awesome. I remember that. No, there have been houses that I've walked into that I'm like, I don't want my shoes touching this. I'm afraid that, you know, there might be a (laughs) disease that comes from it. So we don't have to wait for the inspector on that one. Now, I'll give you a little negotiation tip here too, and it shows the difference between between a veteran agent and one that's fairly new. Sometimes the agents don't know what 7D2 means, or they don't understand the concept, so they don't put that the carpet needs to be replaced. But then they go through an inspection, they have a lot of requests, And then they also decide now they're going to ask for the carpet. It's a very rookie move to put that you want the carpet replaced in the inspection review versus in the beginning. Because if there's a sharp agent on the other side, I want that experience. They are going to bust your ass for doing that. They are going to immediately jump on you. One, basically saying you don't know what you're doing 2 you're not very professional Three, anybody should have told you that that would have been asked in the beginning because that's what the whole 72 72 blank says. And they're going to hold it against you because it's going to be a signal to them that you are not that experienced. It is a sign of weakness to ask for something so trivial like carpet when you should have already known to ask for it before. So you're basically opening yourself up for I don't know what I'm doing. And when you get the I don't know what I'm doing, you get the, you're not going to be respected as much and you're hurting your client because now that other agent is going to push you around a lot more than they normally would have because they know you don't know what it is that you're doing. Now, the reason why this is important to you, and that's why we love the, the content in this show, we constantly tell people this show is not done for stuff that's taught out of the books. This is the stuff from being in the trenches and knowing. See, we expand. You might look at 7D2 and go, yeah, 7D2. 7D2 has a much more powerful message and understanding in the contract and negotiation itself. You have to understand these things to be a better agent. You have to understand these things to be better than the person you're dealing with. That's why we pride the fact that our SWR group is very well trained and very well educated on these things because they know better. They know that when they see that, that they're not supposed to ask things like that because it sends a bad message, and that message could hurt their client. Alright, so I love the 72 conversation. Um, some of the more obvious things, like if the seller's disclosure has something that says, "Client recently got foundation inspection, five peers need to be added, will be repaired," that should go on 72. The client already said that the seller already said they know it has to be fixed. So why would we wait to negotiate that when they already said they're going to do it? That should go in 72. The things that we know, Mike said it best, the things that we see that we know are a problem need to go on there. The reason why we're doing the inspection is we're trying to catch the things that we didn't see before. And even then, sometimes that's missed, especially when it comes to WDI, wood-destroying insects. Sometimes even the inspector doesn't catch through that. So love that conversation. Back to the expectation piece. If it's the buyer, we're telling them, we are going to ask them for the things that we need day to day. So if the air condition is not working, if the heater is not working, if the shower is not working, if the stove's not working, these are things that we use on a daily basis. If the inspection shows that one of those things is, not working correctly, or is is uh, in, in need of repair, it is customary to ask the seller to fix that. Those are things that we're going to ask them. Now, where this gets tricky, and it's a longer conversation, is when we get into the areas that are safety hazards, and the buyer feels the need that they have to be requested because they affect safety. Mike, what? are some of those issues you're pretty you're pretty savvy on some of the uh code things that because the code says they now need to be fixed it didn't need they mean they needed to be fixed 20 years ago what are some of those examples that cause us issues in this
0: repair negotiation for the things that were that are older or things yeah that like
1: coaching or like the GFCI safety. stuff right do it like the gfci stuff
0: yeah i mean you know arc faults are are, are relatively new um uh, gfci in certain areas or are, it's not relatively new but in you know you're selling a 30 year old home i mean it's not going to have them where they say they need to be now you know wh- what i've run into is when you actually have G- someone actually put a gfci outlet in a kitchen but it wasn't hooked up as a gfci actual circuit oh so it was. It it looked as if it was good because it 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 was a GFI circuit. You could see it had a GFI, you know, uh, reset trip everything. But it wasn't an actual GFI. It was in the kitchen, so that's what they thought they did. But all they did was hook it up like a normal outlet. Guys, and just saying. So, you know, for so newer that kind agents, of thing. It's it's false safety. Yeah.
1: And for newer agents and any of our clients that watch or general public. When he's talking about GFCI, he's talking about ground fault protection. Years ago, they finally decided that, uh, I still don't understand this, but there were way too many electrocution deaths from electrical items being thrown in water and someone being shocked to death. I still try to figure out how that would have happened even back then while you're having something that's plugged in and you're playing with water. But it happened enough to where someone finally said, you know, we could shut the circuit down if it touches
0: water. And that's what the ground fault protection did. The ground fault went in there and said, "Well, they used to put a lot of a lot of those outlets used to be at the bottom of the cabinet, way down, and then kids took baths and water got down there, and you now had, that
1: now that makes sense to me. That that
0: there's a lot of things like that, and you still see you know outlets down there. They're not that's not right. But, yeah, I mean the houses are old. What are you going to do? You have, you have to move everything. But
1: let's talk about the conversation with that's a great explanation by the way, Mike. So Brent." He talked about the the hands-on knowledge of it and the reason for why we're looking at it. 1970 house that we're buying and it doesn't have GFCI as the buyer agent. It comes up on the inspection. It says it's not per code. What's the right way to explain that to the buyer?
2: Well, even worse is it says it's a safety hazard on that (laughs) inspection report, which that's real fun explaining to your buyers, but You know, it's basically you're going to say that these people, these sellers never had any problem with it. It's worked just fine. So if they've taken the time to retrofit their house or they didn't take the time, why would they bother doing it for you? You know, if that's something that's important to you, once you move in, you're more than welcome to do it. But if it ain't broke, don't fix it.
0: Or when they say it's original wiring, but the house was built back in the 30s. And I'm like, so you're saying it's lasted for 90 years with no issue. That is really good. Both of y'all are fantastic.
1: Uh, always makes me proud to be with y'all. Y'all have learned so much over the years. You just like do it nonchalant. Great technical on uh, Brent and Mike's. is That's that's one that I don't use a lot. Y'all, just so you know, Mike's a longtime friend of mine. Super smart ass. Most stable face. So cold face that you'll ever meet. Funniest guy ever. And that's exactly a great comment from him about... How that's exactly how you explain that to somebody. Oh, well, it's only worked for 90 years, you know, so what the hell? I love that. I mean, Mike, that's so you too.
0: Can I, you imagine? And this is and I've run into this because I've had to I've had to pay for this. So when you try to fix something that is 60 years old, even if you're trying to fix a small portion, once you fix that small portion, many cities and counties. That means you. Since you're touching it, you gotta fix it all. All right. So
1: that's a good one. So let's talk about that. And it's in the same conversation too. So two or three years ago, actually, it's probably been longer. They changed the code. I, I can't even. I, is it the? It's what's? It's the arc fault. The arc protection. Right. And they went back through and they said. Uh, that way too many of these houses, the wiring's too old and this art protection is causing fire hazards or whatever. And, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, Brent too, for that matter. It's the, how am I trying to say it, it's the plate or the, the initial box uh, of the wiring that they're saying has to be fixed. But some people go to, like you said, Mike, they're like, well, all of it has to be replaced. Well, a lot of times, if you put something new on something that was old, it's gonna make it more dangerous than it was before, just because of what Mike said it's been working for 90 years now, but now you you screwed with it. You know, it's kind of like the old don't don't screw with it if it ain't broken,
0: you know. Now, and- if it's a new issue on old equipment that can cause bad things, that's a different issue. It worked for 90 years. Because it was sealed properly, it was you know, or sealed up. Maybe not properly in today's standards, but sealed up. But but now it's not because of a tree limb fell on it. Well, yeah, now if something has to be done. Uh, uh, if the box on the outside of the house is too far away from the house, they're not. You can't just push it back. Right. You got to kill the power. Once you push that box back, city of dent means you have to have a new panel.
1: Right. Let's talk about the uh, panels. Uh, Brent, we see this every once in a while, right? We see where, which one is it? Is it the Fed Pacific one? Is that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's one of them and the other one, I can't remember the other uh, Actually, talk box, about talk
1: about Talk about when we see that on a report, what, what is it that the inspector typically well, is telling us to
2: do? To be fair, as a good agent, when you're doing that initial walk, if you happen to look at that box, you should see that and notice that and be like, Hey, just, you know, this will probably get flagged. These, uh, these boxes are known to cause fires. um, And this is something that either you're going to ask that seller to replace, or you're going to want to do it on your own as soon as you take over. Um, So, I mean, those, those are things that that seller is going to say, well, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, there hasn't been a problem, but there's also a good chance that it could be a fire. So that's where you're going to have a negotiation and make sure you prep your buyer that they might want to replace it on their own.
1: And I like the way Brent presents it. I would tweak it a little bit. I, he didn't I like my answer. I, I don't go as far as the uh, uh, telling them that it will cause that it, it probably could cause a fire or it would cause a fire. I more take the route of hey, look, it's happened, it's been flagged as that it's dangerous. But on the other hand, that panel's been working for just like Mike said, it's been working for ninety years now. You know, I, I'm not asking the seller to fix it just because it got flagged on there. If you're a paranoid type and you feel like it needs to be redone, then like Brent said, you better be thinking about how much is it going to cost for you to do that. But to ask the seller to do it, it's not good etiquette. And Brent said it perfectly a little while ago. Why should they fix something for you that they've been living with for 30 or 40 years? I mean, Why? what makes you special? And I'll tell you, A lot of people don't catch this, but common sense sometimes doesn't set in when you're asking somebody to do that. If you really look at it from another perspective, let's say you tell a seller, look, I want that fixed. Or worse, you start pitching a fit and even threaten to back out because, look, it's a safety hazard. I have kids. I want it fixed. You're basically telling the seller in a different way, hey, you're a dumbass for living like that for all these years. You're stupid. You should have replaced this. That house could burn down. Your kids and your grandkids could have been burned down by now. You're an idiot. I want it
2: fixed. Do you That's include that in your offer letter? That. What's that, <laughs> Do you include that in your offer letter? Good. <laughs> Zinsco. Zinsco, Zinsco is the to other one. That
0: there's a completely different, different tone of voice and, and, and thought process to something that should be fixed or you want fixed beforehand or that you should really put thought into fix a little bit later on down the road yourself. But now you know about it like a, a Freon or a 410 AC. It, they're going to tell you if it's the old Freon and it's going to be more expensive to repair. And there may not be parts and et cetera, et cetera. And you may want to in the next few years, you know, put it, it convert it over to a 410 unit, but they're not going to pay to do it.
1: Yeah, the, the, and, the
0: seller's not going to pay it for you.
1: And that's a great way to put it. It's, it's really another takeaway and really the theme
0: of what we're discussing
1: here. Is this is a pre-existing home. If you've got a client that's a buyer that is constantly just asking for everything and every single thing bothers them, at some point you have to turn and go, why are you buying a pre-existing home? I mean, you bitch about everything. It's obvious that none of that's going to please you this is not a new purchase you know these are things that are expected you can't go into a home that was built in 1968 and expect it to have had a pre a a complete remodel there's going to be something in that home that's old garage doors reversing those things the doors the the water heater might be on the on the on the garage floor oh god forbid you know that's my favorite that now it's code that the water heater's 12, uh, that's a foot off the ground. Who gives a damn if it's in the garage? What does it matter? Yep.
0: Yeah, that's my favorite request. Well, I've got one out. on the ground and one 18 inches high. Yeah. Uh, uh, a, yeah. Whoa. I, I always like to go,
1: let me give you a really good hint. Whether it's a foot above or not, when it busts, it's everywhere. It's going no matter where it's going to happen. That's another funny thing, too. I enjoy the uh, I love the overfill pan mm-hmm. that just kills me you know yep. you have so many people well it 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 doesn't have a pan it needs so I'll give you a hint it doesn't make a shit worth of difference with that pan if that water heater busted the water's gonna be everywhere from here to kingdom come yep. the pan's just an alert system that if you're in the house, that maybe you might be able to catch it. But if you're gone, it, nothing's going to stop.
0: And if the, and if the unit doesn't have an automatic water shutoff. that's right. It's not just the water in the, in the tank. It's the water that's hooked up to the tank. Yeah. It, it,
1: it's, it's really entertaining at times
0: uh, to go through and look at
1: how people pick through. So look, y'all, I told you that this conversation's a long one and, it doesn't even do it justice. There is no stopping point for us ever officially when it comes to inspection. I told you we we're going to break these shows up into two pieces, and that's exactly what we're going to do. So I want to thank everybody who watched this beginning piece of it. We're going to continue on for our next week uh, podcast on it. We're going to keep going right where we start left off here, and we're not even close to being done with this conversation. You're getting the gist of the idea. We're basically about 5% telling you,
0: done.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're giving you the gist of what it is that we're telling you for, and we're ending this one with the expectation that a buyer should have been, you better only be asking for the things that are truly in need of day-to-day, because the minor stuff are things that you should be doing on your own. On the next week's show, we're going to actually tell you why that's important. We're going to tell you why you have to ask it like that from a negotiation standpoint. So, as always, thank you all for watching. Hope you all have a good rest of the week. We'll catch up with y'all soon. Uh, this is a really good episode to share with somebody else that struggles with inspections, friends, other peer real estate agents. Always pass this one along to them because this one's a real educational one for them at all. Thanks for watching. We'll catch up with you guys next week.